0: welcome back to Indivisible with Jim Skinner. What you just listened to was the official Indivisible theme music composed by Autumn and I. I'd also like to take the opportunity to thank Tolan Greyhaven for the lovely artwork. Today we start to dive deeper into the topics that we discussed last month with some more practical examples and modern scenarios. Follow us on Instagram at Indivisible with Jim Skinner or on Twitter at Indivisiblecast. I'm Stephen Mill and I have with me Jim Skinner and Autumn Woods. It's a beautiful, cloudy Sunday here in downtown Vancouver.
1: Let's get back to it. How are we feeling today, gentlemen?
2: Oh, hi, Stephen. Good to see you again. Hey, you as well, Autumn. Good to see you.
1: Good to see you as well. Yeah. I'm having a good day today. I'm feeling great. How
0: are you feeling, Steve? I'm feeling fantastic. I can't wait to dive into it. I'm thinking uh, maybe we should start, just as a topic to start with, we should begin with our goal of compassionate communities. Uh, Jim, can you maybe elaborate on what that means and what exactly does it include and why, why is it something that we need? Well, I think
2: community can be all kinds of communities. In fact, one could one could say that some communities look more like a cult, and other communities uh, are highly competitive within that community, so it's not a place where you really feel you can settle in. And I'm not even sure I'd call those communities. A passionate community holds a space for, that includes allows for everyone to enter into that with a sense of being themselves is good enough. So compassion at community is a community that allows for both uniqueness and the person to feel part of at the same time. So compa- the essence of compassion is acceptance and understanding, but not just blind acceptance because you're a member of our community, but understanding, moving towards conce- you know acceptance of the individual.
0: And I think that that has something to do with the name of the podcast, right, as well? Right, because,
2: yes, Indivisible uh, comes out of the idea uh, uh, that we're both part of, idiosyncratic, and at the same time, we are individual people. So what I'm saying here is the following, is that um, the Greeks' idea for uh, an idiot was a person who thought they could be whole and complete outside of community, And idiosyncratic means unique or separate, whereas uh, the idea of community is that you are part of the community. So to the Greeks, you had to be both idiosyncratic and communal at the same time. So their definition of a person who thought they could be whole and complete outside of community was an idiot.
1: Wow. That's so interesting to learn where that came from. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. Do you... uh Do you see a large amount of compassionate communities around you in your day-to-day life, or is there a lack at the moment?
2: I think that there's a great lack of community. Uh, I work a lot with adolescents, and what I see is a highly competitive group of people all trying to belong, all trying to fit in, all trying to discover for the first time their own identity, and it being a bigger and bigger struggle to try and fit in that. So I wouldn't say that adolescents generally have that sense of community as, as we know it. No, overall, I think we all struggle a little bit because of the highly competitive nature of our our times that we live in. Mm. So you, you think of And also the, with that competitiveness goes the idea of I'm a winner, you're a loser. I'm doing better than you, or I'm a loser and you're the winner. So there's, there's not, in that competitive game, there's only winners and losers. So ultimately, everybody's your enemy. Mm. So it lacks that feeling of compassion. So what it's about is power and control or power and domination versus the, which is very different, that skill set, say, as, as a member of, of a group versus the skill set of feeling cooperative and influential in the group
0: definitely i was just thinking about how lucky uh we are just to not be in high school at this certain (laughs) time you know and i think everybody every generation looks at the younger generation and thinks wow i have no idea what's going on in their heads Mm, but i you know i just i live a couple blocks away from a high school and it's just there it's all very it all feels very overwhelming and very competitive and i and i think that might have been the way it was when i was in high school too but i think it's Definitely amplified. It's yeah. on
2: steroids. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, and Xanax and, and you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, and
1: yeah, you know, Ritalin, Ritalin, Ritalin. Ritalin. Yeah. yeah, no, you you bring up a good point. <clears throat> Social media has created this world where you can have all of the judgment and all of the connection without any of the nuance of actual face-to-face getting to know somebody so it's so much easier for these people these young people to get into competition and to feel like this community isn't one that's supporting them when they have right. to put on a face well social media uh, allows people to present their best selves
2: mm. which is a bit of a fiction other people look at that and go oh i'm certainly not living up to that person's sense of that they have of themselves as their best selves and so 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 often deep feelings of inferiority are amplified because of this highly competitive non-community
0: grouping. Are people actually living their best lives or are they just presenting that? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's so interesting. I also think it's one of the most interesting things for me is is trying to apply these principles to online spaces because i think online spaces are a necessary evil and i think that they're proliferating Mm. and i think that there can be positive online spaces but it just you need to know which ones to to be a part of and which ones to to you know not you need to respect the power of the internet and it's kind of as an adversary you know as just to kind of be able to to deal with the negatives of it. And I think that we have to accept the, the internet as something that we can at least attempt to apply these principles yes. to. Yeah, I agree. Yeah,
1: yeah, totally. What are some things that you tell the youth that you work with um, in order to help them find more compassionate communities? What's some advice that you give them? That they
2: something you said earlier, Autumn, which is that to meet people face to face, actually interact and have a conversation with people. Yeah. So often, uh, young people are having discussions with each other, either online or face to face. And to me, the word discussion rhymes with percussion, mm. you know, and concussion. Yeah. But to have a conversation is an exploration of ideas of what's going on around you, which is a very different way of interacting than the way I see young people interacting
1: today. Totally. There's something to be said about having a conversation solely through text, especially from such a young age so frequently, almost eliminates your ability to empathize with people because how... You're basing everything that they are saying off of just the words. You don't get that eye contact. You don't get the tone. And you can yeah. interpret
0: it in your own ways entirely. Right, right? you miss the, the body language.
1: Yeah. And the rhythm of, of,
0: of natural conversation doesn't come through. Okay. So when you when you read it, it, you put it in your own kind of rhythm and the own way that it comes through in your own head. Yeah. The, the
2: other part of this is that about about 80% of how we learn is through modeling. Mm. So go into any restaurant at any time and you'll see a family sitting there. And mom and dad are on their device. The kids are either staring at them, waiting for their attention, or they're on their devices. So there's no real conversation or much conversation taking place. Mm. Uh, and I think that there's uh, the parents are not modeling for the young people the idea of having conversation, discussing
1: ideas and exploring ideas uh, together. Totally. And that's a really good segue into another part of this is as somebody who's an expert in parenting, what do you think that parents need to be doing more of as this problem grows? Like you're saying, mm-hmm. modeling is a huge thing.
2: I just want to take a, a just step back on and get onto the balcony for a second and look at just parenting itself. What I've noticed is basically three styles of parenting out there today in the world. Uh, one is, uh, I love uh, Barbara Colaroso, uh, her, her sort of metaphor. She talks about the, the uh, jellyfish family. Mm. And that's a family that there's no structure. People do their own thing uh, as long as, you know, kind of, I grew up in that time of do your own thing as long as you don't hurt anyone, kind mm. of the, the, uh, the hippie time of the 60s. Freedom was the dominant thing. Then there was the, the brick wall family, and that is, when I say jump, Autumn, you have only one question, Stephen. How high? Exactly. And so uh, that's, that's that kind of autocratic, when I say, you do as I say. Um, th- the third family is the backbone family. That's a family that has structure, and yet it has flexibility. So they get the necessary uh, structure they need to be. Uh, organized and not chaotic in their lives and in their thinking and it also they have enough flexibility to have the freedom within that. So it's, it's, it's being able to flow within the structure mm. which is a backbone family and so a backbone family is another word for a democratic family and if anything's under attack in the world today it's the idea of democracy And so, stepping back from even the balcony and looking down on the whole thing, what we need are the skills of democratic living. And the fundamental place we learn those is in the home. Mm. We can have the ideology of democracy, but not in the practice. Ideology of democracy, but not in our home. Mm -hmm. So, it's teaching parents the skills of influence and cooperation and negotiation Versus the autocratic skills of either you know, uh, do as I say when I tell you and no questions asked. Or the other one is just do your your own thing, just don't bother me too much. <laughs> <laughs> and I think parents kind of often go between do your own thing and then as soon as it bothers them, they become autocratic. So it doubly confuses mm-hmm. them going from this jellyfish to to the backbone and just a little... Uh, marriage counseling thrown in here at this moment. Excellent. <laughs> uh, the, the 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 brick wall. He's come from a brick wall family, and she comes from a jellyfish family, and they are so attracted to each other. Mm. He says, "Oh my God, I finally can." put away my, my puffer, I can finally breathe, I, I don't need this anymore, I can, oh, God, my asthma's gone, I'm feeling so much better because of all the freedom that I have in our relationship. Yeah. And she's saying, oh, my God, I was so lonely, and, and, and now I feel wrapped in this wonderful blanket, not just by you, but by your whole family embraced me. Mm. And so it's all good and all fine, and they're happy because they kind of bounce each other off until the kids show up. Yeah. As I mentioned last time, people tend to parent the the way they were parented. So pretty soon as the child shows up, you've got the brick wall and, and the jellyfish and the kid. And what do you get? You get the jellyfish hitting the brick wall, which is a big splat. <laughs> <laughs> and so the kid is often confused, and polarization happens in the family. So there's my little marriage counseling for the day. Uh,
0: excellent. <laughs>
2: Beautiful. Uh, um, back to just... Uh, Kids now today require structure. And uh, what's moved, the movement in the world and the research done by Eva Dreikers Ferguson at uh, Stanford, uh, sorry, not Stanford, at Berkeley, has shown that uh, around the world we've moved more and more towards the jellyfish laissez faire approach around the world generally. Uh, People are having fewer children and uh, they become little princes and princes uh, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the world today. And it leads to the number one problem of how to ruin kids. Well, there's basically two ways to ruin a kid. One <laughs> here's way, the recipe. <laughs> it, here's the recipe. Number one, if you really want to ruin a kid, one way is to totally neglect and the subset and a deeper set of that is abuse them. Mm-hmm. So you, uh, uh, you can treat them that way. The kids are be seen, not heard, and more than that, ignored. And so there's no real sense of the kid being a, a, a member uh, of the family. That's one way of ruining the kid, neglect, abuse. And it's based on punishment. So you have control in that home by, by often either uh, just creating fear, however you do that, either verbally or through isolating the child or through punishing the child physically. The child behaves and is obedient out of fear. And uh, the other uh, 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 one that's most common is the one of pampering. Well, that's what we see in our world, and I see daily in my world, mm. is the pampering. The, you, eat, you get the, the child that is overprotected, and the, parent, the bulldozer parent. They come in and they bulldoze a clear path for the child to move forward in life. Mm. There's that one. And then the other form is the helicopter parent who's so observing and, and controlling the child's life that the child has no confidence that they can do anything on their own. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are the two ways we can ruin any child. Mm.
0: And I think that's such it's such a hard balance to strike. It's such a hard pose to strike in between being those two different things, right? Or these three different things.
2: Well, this is where democracy saved the day. Yeah. Because democracy allows us to negotiate that order. So, okay, what time... Uh, do you want to go to bed, Stephen? Uh, well, I think I should stay up in the school night to 11 o'clock. I'm now 13 years old. And, well, you know, I think 8 o'clock would be a good time. Well, uh, how about 10.30? And, mm, how about 10? And we get to 10.15, say, mm-hmm. Something like that. So we negotiate an agreement. And not only do we negotiate an agreement... What should happen, Stephen, if you don't go to bed at 10.15?
0: We should also negotiate the consequences. Ah, the Mm -hmm. consequence, which is
2: very different than punishment. Mm -hmm. Very different. So we, because punishment is based on fear. Mm -hmm. Consequence is based on social logic. Yeah. Okay, so let's suppose, uh, uh, Stephen, you decide that you're going to stay up to 11 or 10, 11 o'clock. And so, okay, Stephen, uh, what did we decide would happen? Well, we didn't, so we need to sit down and decide what should happen. Mm -hmm. Going forward, what should happen next time you stay up? Okay, so you uh, stayed up 45 minutes, so maybe you need to go to bed 45 minutes earlier. Mm -hmm. 45 minutes earlier, because you were 45 minutes. Do you think that's a reasonable thing? Is it a logical thing? Does it make social sense to you, Stephen? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so there's several rules being followed in a consequence, The, the R's of a consequence. R number one, it's reasonable makes sense. It's reasonable. It fits. Two, it's, it's respectful. It's respectful of you. I'm not physically harming you or f- creating fear in you. I'm just respecting your decision to stay up later, and you're respecting your decision to go to bed earlier, the next night. Mm-hmm. I'm just a humble servant of our agreement now, Stephen. I'm yeah. not even having to get angry. I know you want to stay up later, but you know, you're now having to go to bed at 9 o'clock. Yeah. And so that's and the other thing, of course, is it's uh, it's relatable. There's a relationship between the the time you went over the ten fifteen we agreed upon, and the consequence. And last and, and most important for a parent is the fourth R is that it's reliably enforced. We can make this
0: stick. Mm-hmm. I mean, how does that have to be altered for troubled youths that don't, want to, that don't want to cooperate, that even that they don't want to be part of a democratic situation either? They just don't want to, don't want to be there at all.
2: So there's usually a reason why they're not cooperating, uh, and you have to look at that. And so that's, that's usually, again, very idiosyncratic, very individual, but it's usually a child who, for one reason or another, is discouraged. Because everybody wants to belong, no one chooses not to belong. I want to belong and my older sister does everything right, and her parents are just hold her up as an example of perfection and uh and I uh, am discouraged. I can never match my older sister's performance, mm-hmm. so I get discouraged, so I still need to belong, so I'm going to be the best at being the worst. Ah. So at we, being alternative, an alternative. So we all want to belong. It's how we find a way of belonging. So that way, we it moves us into the next topic, which is that of encouragement versus
0: praise. And I think that there's a lot of a lot of times in adolescence life where they feel like they don't want to belong at all. You know, they don't want to be well, part yes. of it. it well, there's there's a, a movement down here. here yes. yes, deep down they do. Well, yeah. th- I always think of adolescence is that time.
2: Uh, <clears throat> it's sort of like. A snake who has to shed its skin. Mm. And in, the, in the fall, you often find uh, these little snake skins all over the, 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 the pathway up to our cabin. You'd find these snake skins. And I see they're shedding childhood in adolescence. And they want to get rid of that view of them, uh, the, and who are the custodians of that childhood image? The parents. Mm. So they want to push away from the parents to, to find for the first time their unique uh, sense of identity. So that pushing away is a natural, healthy thing that every adolescent gets involved in at some point or another. So we're dependent in, in our family as a child. That's why as a therapist, I don't see a child under the age of 11 or 12 separate from the, pa- from the parents because they're, they're integrated into that family. Mm-hmm. After that, their job is to become independent. They're, so they go from dependency to independency and then somewhere late in their teens or into their early 20s they become interdependent again with the parents. So they rejoin the family as an adult. So they go from childhood into adolescence and then back into adulthood mm. at the other end. So there's a natural flow there that needs to happen. So, but the parents the key thing are seen as those custodians of childhood that they are trying to shed the skin of so to speak interesting uh, i guess i could uh, 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 say that also in that in that process parents are often shocked that uh, well i know other children are kind of rebellious at 14 but not my little Susan. (laughs)
0: Not my little angel. (laughs) Yes. My
2: little darling. She's never going to, my princess would never be like that. And then when she comes in slightly hormonal because she's reached that age and she's going, whatever, dad. (laughs) And suddenly dad's going, what What happened to my angel? She's doing what she's healthily should be doing, which is becoming independent Mm. and finding herself for the first time as an adult. The other part of it is, as a child, you tend to follow the agreed upon rules that are set down and 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 the kids will go with them generally they'll go with what we've agreed to, and if we don't fit, we go back to the which we'll talk about in a few further broadcast is how do we set in a regular way those those uh, boundaries together uh, negotiate those boundaries together but before that when they hit adolescence, they are moving to a place of Fifty Shades of Grey, the rules that worked when it's a child don't work quite the same way with an adolescent. So they're wanting to really say, well, I know I should be able to do what I want. I'm, I'm now the boss of myself. I'm a young adult, all of that.
1: Mm. I was curious. Um, I'm one of three brothers. And I noticed I, that throughout my my youth, my parents had slightly different parenting styles for each of us. Like They mm. were considerably more... Helicoptery to my older brother yes. than they were to me, than they were to my younger brother. Well, so, well, they, he was the first genetic experiment. They yeah. hovered over the <laughs> over the
2: crib a lot. Yeah. A lot of pressure on him. Just to, and he's number one. He, mm. That's a lot of pressure. So the oldest tend to be uh, go along with the parents. They tend to be a rule follower. Want people to like them. Tend to be a very goal oriented at school and do well there. The second one. They're much more, uh, we try harder. They're going to be much more in there, uh, whatever the oldest one is, and goes along with the rules of the parent. The second one's going to not just buy in right away. They're going to test and make sure that there are reasonable things that the parents are laying down here. Yeah, <laughs> And so they tend to, be, whatever the first one is, particularly if you're close in age, you're going to be quite different. Mm. It might even be the opposite. If the first one is a great reader, the second one might be Dyslexic. If the first one is a great musician, the next one might be tone deaf. Mm. And so they often will take on uh, the things that the first one has not captured. They will move into the first one's not very athletic. The next one might...
0: Be quite athletic. Yeah, my sister's pretty tone deaf. <laughs> 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 I, uh, I, and that's a big Adlerian principle, isn't it? Kind of the family, sphe- mm-hmm. family sphere and where people are.
2: Yeah, so the, yeah, I've described the oldest. So the second one I'm describing, whatever the first one is, the second one isn't, mm. in a typical North American family. Interesting. And if, it isn't, if, it, if it's different than that, that is very interesting to me as a therapist. Mm. Then you've got the second one becomes the middle when the third one shows up. And so, of course, the middle one, you've got the oldest who gets all the accolades, everything done right and first. The youngest one is spoiled rotten from the point of view of the middle child, (laughs) the little baby that gets excuses made for. And the one in the middle thing, things are never quite fair. Mm. So I was doing a workshop at the um, Justice Institute, and it was with uh, judges and lawyers and family court counselors. There were 22 in the group Was how to write a certain kind of report and uh, for for the court, and I asked, how many here are middle children? And out of the out of the twenty two, sixteen of them were middle children. Oh my gosh! Which is because <laughs> the middle child it isn't fair. So the middle child often finds a family down the street that's far more uh, uh, understanding of them than their own family. Mm. And usually, if there's a problem in the family, the identified problem is often the middle child, but. But I see the middle child much like the canary in the coal mine. If there's a dysfunction in the family, which all families have them, it'll show up mostly in the middle child.
0: Interesting. I hadn't thought of that.
2: And so the youngest, by the way, is smiling, cheery. Uh, they're your politician and your your in, insurance salesperson type people. They're going <laughs> to smile. They're going to get they smile and charm their way into getting other people to tie their shoes for them because we need to get going.
1: They've learned very early in life how to use their their charms. That's so interesting. Um, in, in the example, you were talking about this is more prevalent when people, children are close in age. Yes. In my specific situation, I have five years between myself and my older, younger, older brother and seven years between myself and my younger brother. How would that affect oh, so the we'll, see,
2: These aren't ordinal positions. Glad you raised that. They're, they're psychological positions. Mm. So if you think of it in terms of planets, if the planets are too far apart, then the gravitational pull on each other isn't quite as strong, mm. so you would have the qualities of both uh, uh, a second child, being different than your older brother, but also you're like an oldest too. So you're probably quite responsible and driven. Mm. Is I, that is that true? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And your brother's younger brother's seven years younger than you. Yes, he's like what we would call a super baby. Mm. It's a bird. It's a plane. Super super babies are. Um, they figure it out, but it just takes them longer than the rest of us.
1: Interesting.
2: And he'd be more like an only child. Yeah. So he's going to either be a lot like an oldest, and much like the qualities that you have as a, in that five-year gap, but he also is... Uh, Going to be well parented mm. by by not just his mom and dad, but two older siblings. Yeah, so he's either going to be very confused or <laughs> very or, organized. Yeah, <laughs>
1: you no, know, it's interesting that you say that because <clears throat> he's definitely becoming. He's got the best traits of everyone in my family in one person. Right. Yeah. So, so you guys did a good job. <laughs> yeah. I guess. I guess so. The four of you. He was the final yeah. form of the experiment. And yeah. he's
0: starting his own podcast, isn't he? He's about, recording about as we speak. As we speak about nice. the, uh, the teenage situation and the, and kind of, it should be incredibly interesting. I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to listening yeah. to that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. We were talking about how there's very few podcasts hosted by teenagers. It's not necessarily an accessible thing for them to create yet. Yeah. 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 And so he wanted to create a space where teenagers got to speak out about teenage problems from their own perspective.
0: Yeah. Instead Perfect. of us talking on yeah. their I think perspectives, can, yeah. right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> we tend to tell
2: them we the decision. Discussion thing. We we need to discuss this matter, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the that adult to child thing, which of course every teenager rebels against. They give them the old, you know, whatever with it, uh, with that. I think that um, adolescence was created uh, by the print. Well, actually, childhood was created by the printing press. Before the printing press, there was no such thing as childhood. You were an infant or you were an adult, or you were infirm, because it was an oral culture. Mm. With the arrival of the printing press, and the, the first book they printed was the Bible, you had to read the Bible for yourself so you could know right and wrong. So you were in the protected state of childhood from drug, sex, and rock and roll, uh, and, and so, so till about 12 or 13 you were considered a child, and therefore not the same rules and laws of the land did not apply to you. Mm. Also at that time it gave the rise of what we would call schools. at at that time. But at 13, depending on the country, you were considered an adult. And then after World War II, they decided, hmm, we need to go further with this one. And uh, they came up with something, well, Madison Avenue did, actually, in 1949. They said, we need a marketing niche. We're going to call it, and put in the idea of sort of the teen market. Mm. And so they created that whole marketing (coughs) niche of the adolescent Mm. and uh which my, is huge which is yeah huge. Well, of course uh yeah it's, it's got its own its own thing i mean i grew up through that period of suddenly realized oh we're a thing now yeah in a, as a teenager it. yeah we have elvis uh, yeah. with, for my generation uh i think the other part of this is that um that because we do that we we keep uh, in the gray area of adolescence, we keep, tend to, keep, parents don't know quite what to do with that. And my advice to parents, although it hasn't been asked for yet, but my advice to parents would be this once they reach adolescence, 12, 13, depending on the child, uh, who now becomes a young adult. So I don't call them adolescents, I treat them as young adults. That's adults who can make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And even our laws, I would point out to parents. Treat uh, somebody under the you know uh, under the age of being an adult differently in terms of the law. We're a little softer because they're adults who make mistakes, mm-hmm. so we're a little more lenient with that. And I think if you, when I say to a, an adolescent, you know, I don't see you as a as a kid, I don't see you as uh, a teenager. I see you as a young adult. The uh, and will respect you as a as an adult. Uh, they, they just light up.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow.
2: Here's some, they kind of stand a little taller. Yeah. I'm now not a
1: kid. I'm treated as a young adult. That's something that I've tried to apply in all of my interactions with younger people. And I learned it through my younger brother is that he's just so much more confident and happy when I, as a, as like you said, a parental figure in his life, yeah. treat him like he already has it figured out and he has to step up to the challenge yes. as compared to condescending upon him. Yeah. Yeah, I
2: just to say something again about children are wonderful observers, and uh, they observe their their world around them, and they decide how they are going to move into feeling better about themselves by being able to belong within this family, which is the first community they belong to, is their family, um, and. In that observation, they could be right or wrong, they, and they tend to be very black and white, because the, although they're wonderful observers, they're terrible interpreters, because mm-hmm. they haven't lived very long. So they often misinterpret and make things fairly black and white. The issue is that that goes in in the first, say, uh, zero to seven years of life, and that becomes f- fairly hardwired unless the parents uh, kind of confront that by teaching their children the the skills of cooperation and working together. In other words, a parent's job now becomes how do we create as a family a cooperative community where we are working together in a way that we become compassionate, which means we respect each other and, under, and and understand and accept each other. And respect is another thing. If you respect your father, you'll do exactly what his, he tells you. That's not respect, that's obedience. Um, I wear specs, with glasses. So to respect is to see you again. So like recycling. Yeah. Respectacles. Respectacles, <laughs> good one. So the deeper we go, uh, it, it, so looking again means to understand more deeply what's going on with that person. Mm. And one of the great disciplines I work with with myself is moving from judgment to curiosity, moving from judgment to curiosity, rather than just judging the kid as being bad, saying, hmm, he's a child, he's misinterpreting the situation, he needs to understand that his behavior is not appropriate in grandma's living room, running around and doing somersaults amongst all her china. (laughs) So she needs to learn and he needs to learn how to behave in a way that's useful within that environment, which is to be careful.
1: Hmm. Have you noticed a correlation between children who grow up in homes without a compassionate, respectful community seeking community online because of the lack of it with family and not finding it? Oh, most
2: gangs, except all... All those ones who couldn't find community in their home mm. or in other ways, that's one place that shows up just just within the community of, of school and in that broader community. Yes, absolutely. So if I can't find it here, I'll find it online. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely astute. That's very, that's very
1: true, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, because those communities, like you said, they <clears throat> pale in comparison to what you could be getting from a family, mm. and so you're creating this world where as a parent, if you're not respecting your child, you're forcing them to look into a place where yeah. respect doesn't really exist in the same capacity. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: yeah. well, Unless we do something to actually work towards making our online communities more respectful.
2: Exactly. You know? that, that can be one thing that can happen. But often the online communities are, create an incredibly competitive, mm-hmm. unrealistically competitive environment mm. for the most part, which is the opposite of compassion, the opposite of community is... We're speaking about. It I here. think it's
0: not conducive to compassionate community, but I think there are a lot of online spaces where people who don't have that in the regular life find it. And I think, I think it's it mm-hmm. it clearly can't be disregarded, right? Like it as oh yes it 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 is a, a a reality of our times, and it's something that you know I think nowadays we just need to focus more on that. Mm. And I
2: agree. I I would say because I didn't. Uh, grow up with the uh with the uh smartphone and the internet uh i can't really enter into that uh and appreciate to the the absolute importance and the meaning of and the relationship with that mm. that uh, phone with that uh, that community online i i you know i acknowledge that i it's just not part of my lived reality mm. growing up so i and that's something that I'm hoping that the, the podcast that you, that's being put up by your brother will help with that.
1: I think it will. Yeah, I think it's, it's going to fill a, a niche and create important conversation. That's like like you're saying. I don't think it's at all out of the question that we can create a better discourse online. Definitely. And create it because there are lots of spaces. The first thing that comes to mind for me is Reddit,
0: mm-hmm. where
1: people gather over the love of certain topics, mm-hmm. and if you say something inappropriate. Other people are allowed to downvote you so that your rudeness mm-hmm. gets removed from the page, mm-hmm. which I think is really cool. So there yeah. are spaces like that.
0: Yeah, and yeah. and I think that, uh, I think personally having grown up with it, it's, uh, I think what really comes down to is knowing which online spaces to stay away from mm. and knowing which ones are, uh, could mm. have the potential for compassion versus which ones are like not really Having a, a well-formed, educated discussion on things, which is obviously
1: uh. quite the polarizing effect of, of the internet, right? Everything gets shortened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get places. summarized. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Places like Twitter, Instagram, all these primary social medias, yeah. you're expected to write everything in a couple of sentences, and so it eliminates the ability to understand truly what the other person's going through. And
0: without the complexity, they they are also uh, held to a standard where especially on in places on the internet they're held to a standard where they have to be this this perfectly woke compassionate person and if you say something bad then you're you know but people need to be able to make mistakes cuz no that person doesn't exist mm, right we're yeah. all working on ourselves Yes, we're
2: all a work in progress. Exactly. And you know the courage to be imperfect, it still needs to be... That's what makes us human, is is having the courage to be imperfect. And we set up this world that needs to be perfect, and people get dumped on so quickly. And a lot of online bullying, as I find in my office with uh, teens, comes out of that one little mistake that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. and suddenly it's amplified, and everybody's dumping on this person, and it can be devastating.
0: And instead of like a mutually respectful conversation about these topics, it's like, you need to do better, you need to do better. It's like, well, how that can definitely polarize people more, right? They they yeah. feel disaffected and then they get more angry and then they get more, you know, farther from their goals of, of compassion.
2: Mm-hmm. It, it seems to me it goes back to the family unit, which is a basic social unit of our society. And if they're it, the environment there is one of compassion, one of the encouragement and intentional development of mutual respect, of uh, a place where uh, conversation can take place, where ag- agreements and, around behavior, around setting limits are negotiated. You get an individual that develops natural confidence and courage. And courage is from the French word courage, which means heart, to develop heart, uh, it allows us to deal with life and all its challenges. If we don't have the courage, it's very, very hard. We end up feeling incredibly insecure and fearful and and don't face the challenges that life present us. We feel discouraged. Mm. And we, see, I'm a great believer that people don't change. I think people either become more or less of who they are. Interesting. So you either expand, you have the courage to go forward in life, or you feel discouraged and you shrink and 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 contract and uh i see that a lot so our job as parents and as as friends and supporters of each other is to encourage each other which is the exact opposite of praise
1: Mm, wow i took away a lot from that that was really interesting i think um what's going to sit with me going forward from that most specifically is that what makes us human Is the ability to be okay with not being perfect. I think that that's really, that's a really important thing to remember right now, more than ever, with the competitiveness of the internet. Well, yes. And even
0: with things like this podcast and content creation in general, you know, at this point, I remember when I was going through, uh, I was doing an audio engineering degree, and they, you know, they said finished is better than perfect because I would always listen to my music and it was never perfect and I never ended up putting Mm. anything out. Mm. But at the same time, you really need to be able to put out something that you might not think is completely perfect because perfect doesn't exist. And you'll get closer and closer to perfect, the more things that you produce and the more things that you put out there. Totally. To be human is to have feelings of inferiority. Mm. And, uh, so
2: courage helps people go forward, even though they are scared. that it's not going to be perfect. In fact, perfectionism is really a reflection of our own discouragement.
1: Mm. That's actually one of the biggest things that I ever learned in my early, I'm still quite young, but a couple of years ago, it came to my attention that pretty much everybody is dealing with their own insecurities all the way through their life at all times. They have things going on in their head. They're often too worried about their own issues to really bring that judgment onto me. Oh, and if they are, it's mm-hmm. stemming from an internal place. It's not right. because of me. Right. And as soon as I realized that, my ability to interact with people and with strangers just multiplied tenfold because I yeah. realized that I'm not really here to fit your standard. I'm here to almost you sure that you feel comfortable around me and then naturally things will become a lot more. High tide floats all boats, right? Yes,
2: exactly. Well, when you create that safe space, and that space where they feel relaxed and can be themselves, mm-hmm. then they're going to bring forth
1: more of who they are in a positive way. Definitely. Yeah. And the thing that really hammered that home for me is challenging the traditional parent role and trying to be more understanding of my father in that way. To realize mm-hmm. that he had issues that he was dealing with and insecurities he was dealing with and to be compassionate with him on up. A- human to human level and not a child to parent level Right, hammered that home. Cause I was like, oh, even this person who raised me, who was supposed to have it all together is just as stressed as I am.
0: Moving from judgment to curiosity, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah.
1: Good callback. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh,
0: uh, yeah. I,
2: I think that that's a whole probably uh, a discussion about fathering a uh, uh, teens mm-hmm. father you know it's that relationship between uh young males and their fathers is uh um it's it's not really even talked about that much mm. and it's uh, it's powerful i did some workshops in over the course of three years in in langley so adult males between the it was called fathering teens and the first one i had 30 people in the classroom i was talking with and Uh, I would put on at a certain point a song by Mike and the Mechanics, which is before you guys' time, called In the Living Years. And it's a a song about the relationship between uh, a young father and his new son and himself and his own father. Mm. It's kind of running throughout the, the lyrics. I put that song on, and to my surprise, there wasn't a dry eye in the place. I'd hand out the lyrics so they could follow along in the place, All These Men. Uh, next year, uh, they, got the, they got the library because I need a bigger space. Same problem. Problem. <laughs> the same thing happened. The, uh, the, uh, the dads all were in tears. This, this is really interesting for all you women out there. The third night, the head of the PAC, which is the parent advisory committee, she came in and introduced me. And after she introduced me, she said, Do you mind if I just sit in the corner and see what's going on here? I said, No problem. So she sat in the corner of the library, and there were probably between 90 and 100 people at this workshop, this session. And uh, I put on the mic and mechanic piece and expected the tears, stoic, stoic amongst all these people, uh, men. Uh, I said, okay, guys, we're going to go early to coffee, get ahead of the the line, and so they go for coffee, and then I ask her not to come back after the coffee break. Mm. And then I go back and I make up a story about how we need to listen to the first verse and the last mm. verse again, which we do. And tears. Really? So one, one female in the, in the room contained 90 plus men wow. emotionally. Wow, huh. Just a little hint out there about uh, how we've raised our sons and uh, and, how, and the job we need to do to help them feel more connected.
0: It's it's definitely says something about about the way that yeah you said stoicism right and just the way yeah. that we're taught to deal with our emotions as men. Mm. It's just you know it's. Emoting for, especially, I think with that father son relationship, emoting to my father or, you know, and Mm -hmm. vice versa is not an easy thing to do. Mm,
2: That's true. Uh, And it's, I can,
0: I can, you know, I feel more connected on an emotional level to, say, my sisters, you know? Yes.
2: uh, Yes. And there's probably other layers to it, but that's certainly one of the major layers we uh, just laid out there. Yeah. uh, Emotional lack of emotionality that's
1: acceptable between father and son i can feel a whole podcast episode brewing around this topic to do one about how fathers interact with their children and one about how mothers interact with their children and then
0: maybe we could do one about uh the way that uh uh, not uh what's what's the word i'm looking for non-traditional families Mm, right i think that's a very there's the emergence of more and more Untraditional family units. Yeah, I think that would be a very, very cool topic. And and in all of this,
2: the key thing is is uh, the way we the way we encourage or not, and the way we set those boundaries and allow that backbone family uh, to emerge. Mm. Whatever, whatever, uh, whether it's uh, to to men raising uh, the, the, the children or to women, or some variation of. There's the whole topic, which I see a lot of, of uh, parents have the children in their early 20s. They, uh, they are uh, separated, divorced in their, by 30s. And so you've got these kids going between two homes. And how does all that get negotiated in a way that allows for a compassionate community to emerge? not only in each home, but between the homes. Mm. And uh, there's a whole, I mean, that's a whole other thing. But I think for our purposes here, for Adlerian principles, the key thing is is to move from reward and punishment, fear-based. Uh, uh, I, I, will, I will reward you if you do what I say. I will punish you if you don't. And to move from to in- consequences, which we Logically developed together, so it's not fear-based, and that we encourage you, which means we focus on your efforts and improvements, and your self-evaluation of how you're doing with what your ever your goal is that you're working towards.
0: Beautiful. I think a big thing for me was just kind of reminding people, especially men, uh, that their emotions are okay. Mm. You know what I mean? That they are they're allowed to have feelings. They're allowed to feel a certain way without being a burden on the rest of their family. You know, yeah. they don't have to be this stoic well, kind of well, character Well, we're, we're,
2: we're changing. Uh, the patriarchal thing is slowly changing, I mm-hmm. think, and I think that that's something that Adler was certainly a great advocate. Alfred Adler was a great advocate for women's rights and children's rights. As I mentioned before, no one likes to feel in the down position, the one down or two down from dad. In the old traditional thing, father was the head of the family and then maybe eldest son was next in line and you went down the till you finally got to is it the older daughter or mom that, that's more valuable you had a whole a whole hierarchical system and to move the democratic system is to put everybody take them off the vertical put them onto the horizontal mm-hmm. and how and that's which is what democracies attempt and we're still working at, towards it being democracy and to quote our, one of our saints, uh, Leonard Cohen, he said, "Democracy is coming to America, and I think um, I think what he was getting at is that be- developing democratic character is a huge shift, as I said earlier, to move from the skills of uh, power and control to the skills of influence and cooperation, as Dreiker's and others talked you, about you met
0: leonard cohen didn 't you before I have it, before met Leonard. I have
2: met him on on uh, on uh, what is it? It's De- Denman Street. <laughs> I met him in uh, yes, late at night. And uh, Al Purdy was there. Margaret Atwood was there. A fellow called John Patrick, which this in this library that we're recording in, uh, he is it's the person who invited me to the event. Huh? And We sat and we talked into the night, into the morning. Might be a
1: better way of talking. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. So yeah, yeah. He
2: well, wore his famous blue raincoat, by <laughs> the way. <laughs> Man, what a
1: character. Yeah, he
2: was very stoic in his own way, quiet.
1: Mm. Well, we probably around 30 to 40 minutes now. If you're feeling like you got everything out, does anyone have any closing statements to summarize? Okay. Yeah. Um,
0: I honestly don't have many uh closing statements except for I enjoyed the the I think the judgment to curiosity thing was huge for me, mm. and I think that it's very it's very interesting 'cause it's hard to take a uh, a stance that's free of judgment, especially when it comes to differing moral stances that kids and and parents may have um and that was that was really huge for me yeah yeah, I definitely related to that as and well. the judgment the judgment about kind of i think masculinity and the stoicness stoicism of masculinity i think- bringing that from judgment to curiosity is a really important yeah. important topic
2: so To give credit where credit's due, I spent a couple years traveling around with a fellow called Warren Ziegler, who was John F. Kennedy's top strategic planner. And we'd go around inventing futures, called futures invention, uh, or inspiriting workshops. And uh, one of the number one skills I learned from Warren was the skill of deep listening. And and one of them is, of course, to be non-judgmental. And so I would say, Warren, how do we get from being judgmental? Because we're always, somebody says something, Autumn says something. I go, "What? Why is he saying that?" Like, I thought he was smarter than that. And I learned from uh, Warren to go, "Okay, that little self-talk in my head. I need to go, okay, stop that, and move back to curiosity. I'm wondering why. I wonder what's behind that. Mm. And it's that leads to uh, a conversation in your head, rather than judgment. And that allows me to be curious. And that allows me to listen behind." things to what's going on for you, and that moves me to compassion. Mm. So I'll finish up with, my. I think today uh, was a a little bit here and a little bit there, but overall I'm quite uh, quite pleased that we're moving towards creating a sense of what it takes to be a, a compassionate community and to be indivisible, being both part of and unique at the same time.
0: Excellent. Yeah. I, I think uh, uh, just back to you were talking about JFK. I recently reread the New Frontiers speech, uh-huh. and I think that that is uh, just such a a wonderful piece of of speech work. Mm-hmm. And I think that that really does summarize a lot of the of the things that we're. Talking about. Oh, I'll have to go back and look at it. It's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. I
1: haven't read it. That's I've got, got a little homework for you guys who are listening now. Yeah, it's <laughs> fantastic. It's very okay. yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Well, let's, cool. thank you so much, everyone, thank for you. listening. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and
0: we will see you next month.
1: Yeah. Bye bye.
0: Bye bye. Bye bye